And we are in Daniel chapter 6 this evening. Daniel chapter 6. I'll just remind you briefly about uh, the setting of Daniel chapter 6 and the structure of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapters 1 through 7 have a, a unique structure to them, which if you understand that structure will help you understand the individual components that are given in each of the chapters. The first chapter in Daniel gives a, uh, an overview of God's control of history and comfort to uh, the people of Israel who are in exile, as is Daniel, because the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has, in 605 B.C., uh, uh, begun a, uh, in his reign, begun a siege of Jerusalem. It's not until, though, 586 B.C. that Nebuchadnezzar finally tires of the Israelites and he engages a mass deportation of Jews from Jerusalem to Babylon. And that includes Daniel, it includes his three teenage friends that we read about in Daniel chapter 3. And Daniel is about uh, his experiences and the experiences of God's people while in exile in, in Babylon. So Daniel chapter 1 kind of gives us that, that setting. But then chapters 2 through 7 each have a structure where uh, each chapter is matched by a later chapter. What happens in chapter 2 is matched by what we are going to see next week in chapter 7. And that's because, you may remember if you've been with us, chapter 2 is about the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in a dream that uh, Daniel interprets for him. And that image has a golden head and a chest and arms of, of silver and then a belly and thighs of bronze and then legs of, of iron and clay. And in Daniel's interpretation for Nebuchadnezzar, that is Daniel, God's prediction of four world kingdoms. And the dream came in the time of that first world kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom headed up by Nebuchadnezzar. That's in chapter 2. We're going to see next week that there is another image, an image of a beast, and that beast represents the four world kingdoms as well. So chapter 2 and chapter 7 have the same subject matter, the world kingdoms. Chapters 3 and what we're going to see tonight, chapter 6, have similar subject matter. Chapter 3 that we saw a few weeks ago is about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being placed in the, the fiery furnace and being, uh, uh, being protected by God and emerging from it unharmed. Well, tonight, chapter 6, is about Daniel being placed in the lion's den. And, of course, we know that uh, he emerges unharmed as, as well. So chapter 2 and chapter 7 are about four world kingdoms. Chapter 3 and chapter 6 are about God's protection in the furnace, chapter 3, in the lion's den, tonight, chapter 6. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen chapter 4 and chapter 5, and those are about God's uh, humbling of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, and then last week, we saw his humbling of King Belshazzar as well. So you have that kind of unique structure to it. So tonight we're going to see chapter 6, Daniel in the den of, of lions, similar to God's protection in chapter 3 of Daniel's three, 
three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, last week, uh, I'll remind you of what we left off with, and then we'll get into chapter 6. But for those of you who have not been able to be with us for any of the weeks, or if, you have only, if you've had to miss some, uh, all of these are recorded. They are all uploaded now on our website, so you can go and listen to the past lessons if you desire. And that's why I've got this thing on, because the guys are recording that. And they're getting uploaded by Tuesday, so, uh, or excuse me, by Friday. So you'll, uh, you'll have those available in the next couple days if you care to go back and listen to them. So last week was about uh, the fall of the Babylonian Empire under Belshazzar. That happens in the year 539 uh, B.C. And that fall occurs at the hands of the, the Persians. And we saw last week that Belshazzar was probably the, the grandson, even though chapter 5 speaks of Nebuchadnezzar as his father, uh, that word that's translated father can be predecessor. And, and actually, uh, Belshazzar's immediate father was Nabonidus. And so you have Nebuchadnezzar, you have Nabonidus, you have uh, Belshazzar. But Nabonidus placed Belshazzar in, in control of a part of the kingdom, and that's why he's called the king. And that's why, as we saw last week, three times in chapter 5, Daniel is uh, promised to be third in the kingdom uh, if he is able to uh, interpret the handwriting on the wall for Belshazzar. Now, the reason he would be third is because you would have Nabonidus, you got Belshazzar, and then you have Daniel. And Daniel, as we saw last week, is indeed able to interpret the writing on the wall, and he actually becomes, for that period of time, third in the kingdom. Which brings us then now to chapter 6. And uh, at the fall of the Babylonian Empire, we end in chapter 5 with it telling us that Darius uh, becomes the, uh, the king, actually conquers Babylon, and uh, he does so at the age of, of 62. I discussed briefly last week the issues related to Darius, uh, the, uh, the Mede, and, and who he is, and how those who don't believe Daniel is an inspired book from the hand of God criticize the way Daniel speaks of this guy named Darius. So I'll talk about that again as you look at verse 1 in chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. In fact, let me look specifically at how the NIV says that. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was, was Daniel. And so you have this guy, Darius, who is his in charge. And the reason that critics say it can't be Darius, the previous verse at the end of chapter 5 says, Darius the Mede took over the kingdom of Babylon at the age of 62. And here's why they say that. Because historically, uh, Babylon fell to, into the hands of the Persians. And so who's Darius the Mede? Why does the Bible say that? Here's why. Just like... Belshazzar's father put him in charge of a portion of the kingdom. Likewise, the Persian Empire was headed up by King Cyrus, but Cyrus put Darius in charge of a part of the kingdom. 
And uh, he was in charge, was Darius, uh, in charge of overseeing the Jewish, uh, the Jewish exiles. And so it is the Persian Empire, not the empire of Media, the Medes, but rather the Persian Empire. And Darius is, been, is, a, is, is a sub-ruler under the Persian king Cyrus. And that's why the Bible is focusing on Darius, because he's the one who has been assigned the responsibility of overseeing these, uh, these Jewish exiles in, in Babylon. History tells us that uh, King Cyrus uh, actually uh, took over the, the Babylonian Empire, but uh, prior to taking over the Babylonian Empire, he had also defeated the, the Medes and, and merged them into uh, his, his empire as well. And so he had a military that was made up of the Persian army and the Median army as, as well. And so, uh, and at this point, the Median Empire, uh, army, excuse me, the Median army outnumbered those in the Persian army. And that's why, as we're going to see in chapter 6 of Daniel, you'll see uh, it referred to as the Medes and the Persians. The Medes are first. And the reason is there are more Medes than Persians. Now, over time, that's going to change. A generation later, that's going to change. And you're actually going to see in the book of Daniel them referred to as the the Persians and the Medes. But uh, the Bible refers to them as the Medes and the Persians because there are more Medes than than Persians. So Babylon falls falls to King Cyrus of, of Persia, who has defeated the Medes prior to this, and you have this, this merging of the Medes and the Persians, and that's why you find that referenced in Daniel. And Darius the Mede is a guy who's been assigned by, uh, by uh, Cyrus to uh, control a portion of the kingdom. So those who criticize the Bible are wrong again, as usual. So when they look at the names of these kings and they go, look at that, historically that guy was not the king. Okay, he's not the king. He's a guy under the king and he's the king for this particular section of the empire. So that's why verse 1 says it pleased Darius. Now, what did Darius do? Verse 1 says he appointed 120 satraps. What is that? Princes, rulers, governors, 120 of them. Now, uh, again, critics say, well, that can't be right because the, there's no evidence that the kingdom was divided up into 120 provinces. And so this number of 120 cannot, cannot be right. But notice, it doesn't say that he appointed each one to rule over a particular province. It doesn't say that. It simply says, appointed 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. And so these are people who were given uh, authority of various sizes as the king so desired to help him rule uh, the section that has been assigned to him. So he appoints 120 overseers, princes, satraps, to oversee uh, each of them a portion of the kingdom. Now, if you think about it, Babylon has been conquered. Uh, The Persians, the Medes and the Persians have taken over. And if you have taken over, think about what would be your first order of business. It would be to organize this thing, wouldn't it? 
And that's why, indeed, verse 1 says that was the first order of business, to, to organize the, the new kingdom, both from a standpoint of establishing law and order, but also to benefit taxation, which is going to, to follow. And it says that it appointed 120 of these. Verse 2 says three administrators over those 120. One of those three was Daniel. So not only was the first order of business now, having conquered the Babylonian Empire, to organize the thing, but uh, Darius has chosen to use some of the people who were already there. I mean, Daniel's one of them. And that's not unusual either. It was not uncommon at, at all for conquerors to try to set up a friendly relationship with the people who are now under their, their power. And although Belshazzar has been killed, his father, Nabonidus, lived for a number of years, so they didn't kill him off, even. And not only that, even some of the gods of Babylon were honored by the Medes and, and the Persians. And they did this as a tactic in order to be as friendly as possible, in order to keep an insurrection from, from happening. And it was not unusual for conquerors to do that as long as those that they had conquered cooperated. This is one of the acknowledged mistakes that we made, the U.S. has made, in the war in Iraq. It is actually failing to do that at the beginning of the war in Iraq. I say acknowledged mistakes. Just this week, Paul Wolfowitz, some of you know that name. He was one of the architects of the war in Iraq. Um, uh, after serving in the Bush administration, became president of the World Bank. But he has now, all these years later, come clean with saying we've made some mistakes in the first uh, year, especially, of the Iraq war. And one of those was failing to have more Iraqis involved in their own governance. And so we went in and actually cleaned out the Iraqis. Uh, and uh, it then appeared to be much more of a U.S. occupation than was healthy, which then created more of an insurgency than uh, we, we wanted and anticipated and created all kinds of problems for us. So that when I say acknowledged, I'm talking about the people who were the architects saying if we had it to do over, we would have done something like these guys done. If they would have just read the book of Daniel, <laughs> then things would have been much, much better. And the point of uh, introducing Daniel now as one of these three administrators. So, you know, Babylon's been conquered, Persia's taken over, they're organizing, they need to do that for law and order and for taxation. 120 of these uh, governors uh, are put in charge, and over the 120 are three, and one of those three is Daniel. Now, the reason that those first two verses are there in chapter 6 is to set up the high position that Daniel has risen to. I mean, Daniel has already shown himself to be, in the first five chapters, to be exceptional in terms of his character. He has already risen to third in the kingdom, but now you have a new kingdom. And he has been placed in high position now in this new empire as, as well. Now think about, think about that. They give Daniel uh, a place of, place of honor, and... They do so because undoubtedly they have heard about Daniel's exploits and Daniel's ability and all that Daniel has, has accomplished. This same kind of thing has uh, happened to others as well. Jeremiah uh, 
uh, was uh, spared uh, by, uh, by God uh, when uh, the Babylonians uh, could, have, could have killed him. Uh, they didn't because of his prophecies about Babylon coming and, uh, and taking captive the Jews. They heard about that. And they heard about his ability to predict that. And they actually honored that. And the same thing now with Daniel. They've heard about, have the Persians, Daniel's uh, predictions. And having heard about his predictions, they are honoring what Daniel was, was able to, to do. They heard about him interpreting the handwriting on the wall that pronounced the doom of Belshazzar. And he had already become third in charge under the uh, Babylonians. And now he's going to be third in charge in, uh, in, in uh, Persia, the Persian Empire as well, or one of three that are under King Cyrus, King Cyrus and um, Darius the Mede. So verses 1 and 2, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 governors to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. Now what did these governors do? They were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So three, doesn't mention who the other two are, but three are set over the 120. Daniel's one of the three, but Daniel stands out among the three. And it's the king's intention to make him in charge of all of them. And again, Daniel's exceptional character. In fact, it uh, says in verse 3, his exceptional qualities. The king saw and planned to uh, set him over the entire kingdom. But at this, verse 4, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, they said, we'll never find any basis for charges unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So here these guys are. And they're saying, you know, this Jew, this Jew comes over here. He's in exile, and this guy's going to be set in charge of the, the kingdom. They are jealous. And they plot against him because they're jealous. And as they try to think about some charge that they can bring, because he is so trustworthy and he's so capable, so reliable, exceptional, they can't find anything. So they say, by their own, by their own words, in verse 5, the only thing we're going to be able to do is try to bring something that has to do with the law of his God. So what they're going to propose next is something that is going to put Daniel in a position of having to, dis, to obey God or man. And they know Daniel's going to choose God over man. And so it's perfect, because this will put Daniel at odds now with Darius, which in turn will allow them to fulfill their, their plan. And so they're now going to bring this to Darius. Verse 6, So, the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said. Now, just stop there. 
So how many people are these? There are 120 satraps. And there were three administrators, including Daniel. So you got 122. Daniel's not included in the plot against himself. So you got, when it says in verse 6, they go as a group, 122 of them go. And they go as a group and petition uh, Darius. And they say, O king, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. So this is the plan to set Daniel in an untenable situation between allegiance to God or allegiance to the, the king. And they come and they say, you know, we've all agreed. Um, just as sort of an aside, as an application of this, you know, when people conspire together, which is what they did, right? And then they come to someone in authority and they say, we all think this is what should happen, right? Um, those in authority who are wise, unlike Darius here, should not be swayed by sheer numbers. Uh, I used to lead teens during a regrettable period of my life. <laughs> and if you were to ask any of them, a regrettable period of their lives as well. <laughs> really, it's true. And uh, I, I can remember teens doing this kind of thing. Teens get together, they don't like something you're doing. They get together and they all decide, we don't like what you're doing. And we all tell our parents we don't like what you're doing. And foolish parents buy what their teens tell them. I'm speaking to you parents of teens. Okay? Really. And I thankfully retired from youth work. And we had another poor soul come in and, and take over. Some of you know Scott Estelle. Remember Scott, poor Scott came in. Scott, Scott was great. I mean, just great. And so I was kind of in charge of Scott. And he and I would get together every so often but I remember this insurrection against him. And uh, some of the parents came to me, and I can still remember one of the parents saying to me, you know, if it was just one of the kids, but it's a bunch of the kids complaining. And I still remember saying to this parent, don't you know that everybody wants to be liked by everybody else? Don't you get that? Don't you get that it's cool to be in favor of what everybody else wants to be in favor of? It has nothing to do with the truth of the matter at all. Now, it may or may not be true, what they're saying. But the fact that a bunch of them are saying it doesn't mean a thing. And I'm just telling you, so if you guys ever mount an insurrection against, say, Larry, and it comes to me, I'm going to say, I don't care how many, I just want the facts. I want the substance of the thing. It may or may not be true, but the fact that there's a bunch of them. And so a bunch of them get together. And they come to Darius and they say, a bunch of us, all of us think this. We've all gotten together. We've all been talking about it. Everybody has seen, you know, this is what should, should happen. And Darius uh, falls for it. Now, why would a king, you know, fall for this? What, what's happening here? Well, they've been planning it. Right? As you read the text, they conspire, they get together, they've talked about it. What can we pin on this guy? We'll never be able to pin anything on him. The only thing we'll be able to do is something that pits him against his God. 
They've thought about it. They've conspired actively. And then they bring it to Darius. Well, Darius is getting hit with this cold. But he's got all of them there. And he hadn't learned the youth group lesson. And so he consents to this, this decree foolishly. And verse uh, 8 says, this is what we think should happen. Verse 8, now, O king, issue the decree and putting it in, put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. And once he has signed this thing, as we're going to see now later in chapter 6, he regrets it. In fact, he probably regrets it very quickly. When he uh, puts Daniel in, has Daniel put in the lion's den, he says, may God deliver you. He regrets having done this, but having done it, it is the law of the Medes and the Persians, and the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be repealed. Now, do you remember that in chapter 2 there was this image of the four kingdoms and the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar. And when, when Daniel gives the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are that head of gold. And the interpretation is now the chest and arms of silver mean a kingdom inferior to yours. Remember that? The inferior to yours part? This is one of the ways that the Persian Empire was inferior to the Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar could do whatever he wanted. If Nebuchadnezzar decided one day it was going to be this, and the next day it was going to be that, he could do that. What he said went, and he could say it on a whim. But that was not the case with the Medes and the Persians. They actually uh, were not uh, complete dictators, as evidenced by the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was the sole ruler in Babylon. Now you've got Darius as part of it, Cyrus is part of it. And then they've got the law of the Medes and the Persians. And once they issue the decree, then we're ruled by law rather than the fiat, the whim of the, of the king. So the king's able to issue these things, but when he, once he issues it, he can't, uh, he can't alter it. And so he foolishly goes along with it, and he puts it in writing. It says, verse 9, according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be repealed. Now, these guys say, let's put him in the, um, the lion's den. And that is important for this reason. Um, remember where his three teenage friends were, were put. I told you that in the structure of chapters 2 through 7, 2 and 7 go together, 3 and 6. We're in 6, chapter 3 was about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. Why not a fiery furnace? Why the lion's den? The reason that it's not a fiery furnace is because the fiery furnace happened under the Babylonians. And this is happening under the Persians. What's the, what's the difference? Do you know what the uh, majority religion, state religion of Medo-Persia was? It's uh, Zoroastrianism. And one of their chief gods was Attar, the fire god. And to have criminals punished by fire would have been sacrilegious. And so instead of a fiery furnace, it's going to be something else. And in this case, the something else is the, um, 
is the lion's den for, uh, for Daniel. And that shows, by the way, then again, the historical accuracy of the book of Daniel. Because it's telling you about a means of execution that's in keeping with who was in charge as the empire at the, at the time, in this case, the, uh, the Persians. So, verse uh, 9, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, or verse 10, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. All right, now I could just, everybody got what's happening here? A decree has gone forth from the king that cannot be repealed that says anyone who prays to anyone other than the king over the next 30 days will be cast into the lion's den. And then verse 10 says, when Daniel learned, what does he do? He goes and, he goes and does the very thing that he's told he's not to do. When he learns of it, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened, and then it says they opened toward Jerusalem. Now, why toward, um, why toward Jerusalem? Well, the reason that uh, he's praying toward Jerusalem is uh, because that uh, Solomon had said uh, in his dedication of the the great uh, temple that there would come times in the future when God's people would be taken captive. And God, says Solomon, in dedicating the, the temple, even when our people are away from here and they are taken captive, Honor this place because when they pray toward the land that you have given, then respond to them. And here is Daniel in a far off land doing that very thing. Now, where did, where did Solomon say that? 1 Kings chapter 8. If you can hold your finger in Daniel 6 and look at 1 Kings chapter 8. In verse 46. Now, this prayer goes all the way back to verse 22. So if you think I give long pastoral prayers, okay, and we've got you standing there after you've already sung three songs, you're getting a little woozy, and you're saying, okay, an amen should be coming any time now. I need to sit down. This one goes all the way back to verse 22. And as he's praying in verse 46, he says to the Lord, when they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to his own land far away or near. So completely applicable to Daniel's situation, right? Daniel's been hauled off from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 47, And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors and say, We have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you, now notice, toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their conquerors to show them mercy. Now do you see what Solomon's saying there? Pray toward Jerusalem. Now 
you guys remember an account in uh, the New Testament? John chapter 4, as Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. And he starts to confront her with her sin, and she changes the subject. And she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. And she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Your fathers have worshipped on that mountain, which is correct. And Jesus says, I tell you, a time is coming and now is, where they will neither worship in this mountain or that mountain. But the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And all the way up until that time, till the time of Jesus, uh, who, who is our temple, until the time of, of Jesus, this praying toward Jerusalem uh, was, was done by, by faithful Jews based upon Solomon's prayer and that being the location of, of God's temple and where God met with men. And so, verse 10 Daniel goes to an upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And then it says, three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. So uh, Daniel is doing what you know Solomon prayed about at the dedication of the temple. He's also doing, interestingly, what uh, Jonah prays about in Jonah chapter 2. Um, and Jonah talks about, you know, ask, he's begging the Lord to spare him, and he talks about praying toward Jerusalem. Well, if you remember what he's, what's happening in Jonah chapter 2, he's in the water at that point. And uh, I, don't, he, I don't know how he knows the sense of direction <laughs> for Jerusalem at all, but nonetheless, he knows the deal, and he knows that's the way it's supposed to go, that we're supposed to pray toward Jerusalem. And that's what Daniel does, and he's doing so, it says in verse 10, three times a day. Why three times a day? Well, that was uh, King David's daily pattern. In fact, Psalm 55 and verse 17. Psalm 55 and verse 17. King David says, Evening and morning and at noon, um, I will go to the Lord and he will hear my voice. And so here is Daniel following the pattern of King David before him. So King David, uh, Solomon, and uh, he's following what they have laid down and patterned for him. And verse 10 says, he does this three times a day, gets down on his knees, prays, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Now, the just as he had done before. Don't skip over that lightly. Because we may get the idea that you know, Daniel is praying because there's trouble which is what you do and what I do, if we're honest about it, that's when we really start praying, is when we're afraid or when something's gone wrong. But, but see, Daniel is in this dire situation, indeed. But this, was his, this is his custom. This is not something new for him. This is just what he had done before. This is what he had done previously. He did not wait to go to the Lord until there was a crisis. Verse 11. Then these men went as a group, found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands. 
in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree that you have put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. See, this shows you, doesn't it, that this guy made a snap decision. He was influenced by the fact that 122 people came. They probably already had the decree drafted. This is what you should do, king. And one of the reasons that you know, Darius was susceptible to it, not only the crowd, but also it was not unusual for kings to be treated like deity. And they knew that, and he knew that. And so he's in the heat of the moment. His predecessors have been treated this way. They've got a draft to put under his nose, and they say, sign it, and he signs it, but he almost immediately regrets it. But it is now part of the law of the Medes and the Persians, and it can't be repealed. And he says that, but then incredibly, verse 14, he was greatly distressed and determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to do that. Until sundown. Why? Because. Glad you asked. Because in all likelihood, there was uh, a Medo-Persian law that criminals had to be executed the same day as their crime. By the way, what a cool thing that would be. How long are people on death row? And how much money and how many appeals and all the, okay, I mean, if you're guilty, for heaven's sake, let's get, let's, let's get the sentence going, okay? Just in my kind-hearted, compassionate you know, <laughs> approach. But that's, these guys didn't mess around. And so uh, they apparently had a law that when you're, when you're convicted, when you've committed a crime, you're going to have the sentence uh, carried out on the, on the same day. So he's got until sundown to save him. And he apparently makes some pleas to Daniel, sends emissaries to make those pleas, something. But obviously Daniel is not going to change this. He's going to obey God rather than men. Um, you know, I say, wouldn't that be a cool thing? Um, you know, another reason they probably had this, one, they didn't have an appeal system that went for years and cost a, you know, a bunch of money and, and all of that. But it would also prevent uh, the hatching of plots to rescue the accused person as, as well. So if somebody's guilty, they executed their version of justice, and they did it quickly. So the fact that the king is so impressed by Daniel, he is so distressed that he has done this thing, but he can't reverse it, but he's only got until sundown, and that's to, uh, that's to no avail, ultimately. So verse 15. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. Now why are they saying that? Because they know he's waffling. They know he wants to change this. They know he regrets having done this. And they want to remind him, this can't be changed. Not that you would ever do that, <laughs> but just in case you're thinking about it. So the king gave the order. 
And they brought Daniel, verse 16, and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. I can't save you. I have sentenced you to death by my own hand. And I regret it. But I can't do anything about it. But may the God who you serve continually, may he deliver you. What a remarkable (laughs) statement by a pagan king. Verse 17 says, A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. So a stone is put in, uh, in front of this den uh, of lions. Does that remind you all of anything? I mean, really. So we'll put this stone there, and what we have decreed will be uh, accomplished. Well, not quite, as we know, in Daniel's case, and not quite in the case of Jesus in the tomb as, as well. And so may, uh, may God uh, deliver you. In verse 22, or excuse me, in verse 18, the king returned to his palace, spent the night without eating, and without any entertainment being brought to him. He could not sleep. The first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. I mean, you see, it's all there, man. He's just hating life at this point because he's the one who's done this. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? This guy is hoping this is going to happen. And Daniel answers, O king, live forever. I mean, I would have loved to have had Snapchat or something. (laughs) You know, or been able to do a YouTube video, right? Because here he is, and he's saying, and then he hears this voice come back to him. And, you know, it's not, as we're going to read here, it is not the weak voice of somebody who's just barely made it out. Because notice what it says. Verse, uh, verse 21, Daniel answers, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed. So Daniel's fine. You might want to check on the lions. But Daniel is, is absolutely Absolutely fine. Now, when God intervenes supernaturally, he doesn't do it part way. He does it completely. When he delivers somebody supernaturally, he does it completely. He did that with Daniel. He did that with Daniel's three friends, didn't he? In, in chapter, chapter 3. And not only were these lions' mouths shut, Daniel's in there with them that whole night. Their, their very natures are changed so that they're now docile toward, uh, toward Daniel. And this uh, reminds you, or should remind you, of what the Bible says about uh, a coming age in the kingdom when the lion will lay with, with the lamb. Do you, uh, do you, have you ever thought about Noah? 
putting animals on the ark. And, um, you know, you've got to gather two of each type. Get a couple lions on there, and you've got two of other types on there. How, do you, how does that work out? Well, God changes their nature for the purpose of them surviving on the ark so that they can then procreate and, and fill the earth after, after the flood. And Daniel, while he's in the den, he probably, he may well have thought of the uh, poetic picture that Job gives of a righteous man who says, Neither will you be afraid of wild beasts, for the beasts of the field will be at peace with you. Job chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And Daniel's trust in God is enshrined in the New Testament as well. In Hebrews chapter 11, most of you know Hebrews chapter 11, faith, Saul of fame, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, by faith, Noah, by faith, all of these, these people. And then toward the end of that chapter, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, people who by faith shut the mouths of lions. So verse 23, the king was overjoyed. And he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his, his God. Same kind of thing had happened to Jeremiah earlier. And in Jeremiah chapter 38, I don't think we have time to turn there, but do you all remember that Jeremiah was lifted down into a cistern and then ropes were given to him and he was lifted back out and it was a cistern without water it was mud and he's in this mud and he's going to starve there but he's rescued they and he comes out and he's completely unscathed and the same thing with with daniel here and daniel the bible tells us had a copy of jeremiah with him in babylon uh, i believe it's in chapter nine but let me check. Daniel chapter 9. Yeah. Verse 1. In the year, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet. So he knows about what happened with Jeremiah. And here he is in the lion's den. And he is delivered unscathed, is Daniel as, as well. So what happens? Verse 24 of chapter 6. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den. Ah, don't you love it? But along with their wives and children. Okay, well, now we don't love it. Before they reached the floor of the den, I'll talk about the wives and children in a second. Before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Yikes. Now, there's 122 of these guys that were involved in the plot. And now this is the wives and children as well. So this is a bunch of people. So uh, it's not necessary, from what we're told here, that all 122 of them and their wives and children 
were thrown at the lion's den. There were undoubtedly people who led the insurrection. It may have been the leaders of the insurrection. But nevertheless, uh, justice is meted out upon those who conspired. But then it involves their, their wives and their children. Now, uh, what about that? Because in Deuteronomy 24, Deuteronomy 24 and verse 16, God gave a law through Moses that children should not be, quote, put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Now, you remember that when the Israelites went into, uh, went into Canaan and uh, they were told by God, when you go into a city and you conquer it in the promised land, that you're not to take anything with you. And the very first city that they went into after they crossed over was a, a city, uh, uh, well, Jericho, is, and they, they conquer Jericho. And then they go to another city, a smaller city, cocky, called Ai. And this should be a piece of cake. But God told them, don't take anything with you. But you remember a guy did, Achan did. And they suffer a resounding defeat in the small place called Ai. And they can't figure out what's going on. Well, it's because somebody has sinned. And you remember reading through the book of Joshua that they finally identified that it's this guy named Achan. And then, uh, as punishment, Achan is put to death along with his family. So on the one hand, you've got Deuteronomy 24, and God says through Moses, everybody will be accountable for his own sin, not for his father's sin. Achan does this thing. Why is his family executed? Well, in keeping with Deuteronomy 24, Achan's family had to have been involved in this. They had to have conspired with him to take this loot out of Jericho. This was God's law, that those who are involved are going to be punished. But this is not the law of Israel. This is the law of the Medes and the Persians. And they have no such merciful law. And so wives, children, other relatives were often killed at the king's command when a man committed a serious crime against the, the empire. And they would use this as a way to kind of nip things in the bud so that any possible retaliation by the criminal's family could not be carried out, not to mention the deterrent effect that that kind of drastic justice would have on potential criminals going forward as, as well. So that's what they did. So here's the king issuing this decree. This is not part of the law of Israel. This is part of the law of the Medes and, and the Persians. And they are thrown in and they are, they are crushed. And then verse 25 says, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land. Now, what is that telling you? We've seen this before. Nebuchadnezzar did this earlier. And I'm writing a decree to everybody, and then it has this, you know, rhetorical flourish. <laughs> every, every person, every language, a nation. Why? Because this is showing the extent of the empire. We're in control of, of everything. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. 
He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of of the lions. And so here is this pagan king issuing this decree that everybody uh, is to fear and reverence the true and living living God. Now, what happens with Darius? Does that mean Darius has become a been saved? That he's born again? You know, it it's, looks pretty good, but not necessarily, because these people are whimsical. They're polytheists. They go with the winning team. And whoever's God is winning at the time, that's who they go with. And so it may be that he came to, to faith, but not, not necessarily that he came to faith um, because that was just uh, the, way, the way they honored gods based upon who did what for them and who had done the most for them lately. And so then chapter 6 ends, So Daniel prospered. And he prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now when it says he, um, he prospered during the reign of Darius and during the reign of Cyrus the Persian, given what I've already said about this dual ruling that's going on, how do you, how do you interpret that? How should you interpret that? You should not interpret it as Daniel prospered during one reign and then another reign after that. It's not saying that there was the reign of Darius and then later there was the reign of Cyrus, which is what the critics of the Bible say about the book of Daniel. That the book of Daniel indicates, they say, that there was a kingdom of the Medes headed up by this guy Darius and then after that, there is the kingdom of the Persians. But that's not what the, uh, that's not what the book of Daniel says. Uh, the book of Daniel teaches that, indeed, Cyrus is the Persian king, and he is the king, but Cyrus has appointed Darius, one of the Medes, whom he has merged into his kingdom, to rule this portion of the kingdom on his behalf. And so Daniel prospers during the reign, and that reign is going on at one in the same, one in the same time. All right, next uh, week we'll look at chapter 7. Chapter 7 is another view of the, war, the four world kingdoms, just like we saw back in uh, chapter 2 with the image uh, that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his, his dream. Let's, uh, anybody got any questions? Anybody awake? All right, let's uh, pray. And we'll be done. Father, we thank you for the preserved words of your servant Daniel. We thank you for the divine character of those words, that they are from you ultimately, though from the hand of your servant, and that they are completely without error because from you. And we thank you, Lord, that these are purposeful words that you have preser- given them and preserved them to achieve your purpose. In the case of, of Daniel, it is to originally teach your people that despite their captivity, you're still on the throne and in complete control. And now for us, these 2,500 years later, that you are still on the throne 
And with all the upheaval in our world at large and in our individual worlds as well, that you are in control and you are orchestrating all things for your appointed end. And so, Lord, help me to remember that and help my brothers and sisters to remember that tonight as they go to bed and tomorrow as they face whatever circumstances you as our sovereign God have allowed into their lives. Help them to remember that you are the God who shuts the mouths of lions, that you are the God who delivers, that you are the God for whom nothing is too difficult. And so, Lord, as we then compare the relatively very small things that we face in our lives, help us to trust you completely. Go with us and grant us safety. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.